Welcome to this session of Grace Point Church. We are glad you're with us here today. Welcome to our church family, as well as any guests who are with us here today also. July 26th, and I was shocked uh, as I looked at the calendar and realized that uh, this marks the 21st Sunday that we have not had in-person worship in our building. And I was thinking about that, and as I read and study uh, not only the Word of God, but uh, contemporary society and uh, the pandemic as we know it, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to end very soon. And so uh, I was thinking about uh, just who we are as a people, and I've always said that uh, we are the church scattered, that we are still the church no matter uh, what uh, our situation and circumstances dictate to us at this time. Uh, down in Atlanta, there's a mega church led by Andy Stanley. He and I were in seminary uh, together. But he said these words about in-person services or gathering together. He said, in-person services dur during coronavirus is neither missional nor evangelistic. Unless, of course, the mission of your church is to gather in a building on Sunday mornings. And of course, Grace Point Church, our mission is not to put people in a building on Sunday mornings to sit and listen to a message. Our mission is to make disciples as we go, as Jesus commanded us in the Great Commission. And you know, that has not ceased. Just because we are scattered, each one of you is uniquely positioned to impact your extended family, your neighbors, your classmates, your co-workers, and others for the cause of Christ. And especially in this day and age of social media and the internet, uh, that we have a far-reaching impact and influence than we've ever thought of. Influence for good and, sadly, influence for bad. So even though we are the church scattered, I want you to remember historically that this is nothing new. You go back to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it records for us the persecution that arose against the early church in Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen. This fledgling church, God caused this persecution to occur, and the church was scattered to the then known world. And that was God's plan, God's will, to spread the gospel throughout the world for the cause of Christ. And I believe personally that this pandemic is by God's hand and God's plan in our age, in our time, for three reasons. To purify us, to strengthen us, and to focus us on what is really important in life for the cause of Christ. And so we come here today and we recognize that uh, we're not gathering together in person. And uh, when that time comes, we look forward to it. But for now, we are learning from God's word and fellowshipping as we can uh, through the internet and other ways and other means. <clears throat> You know, uh, there's an interesting concept about, well, how do you know God's will? What is God's will for our lives? And uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, uh, he has promised to give you the Holy Spirit who indwells us. The third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit indwells believers and he is present in your life. Jot down these references, Romans 8, 11, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. 2 Timothy 1.14, James 4.5, all declare that the Holy Spirit lives within the believer's life, and he leads and guides us. There's a number of ministries the Holy Spirit does, and because if you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit implanted in your life, 
It's implanted in your life. He lives in your life, and he has given you the desire to know and follow God's will for your life. Now, people who do not believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, uh, they don't have that desire. Who do, what do they care? They're just living for what they're living for. And so my challenge to you this morning is if you do not have that desire to know God's will for your life, you should check to make sure that you are really a Christian, really a believer in Jesus Christ. You may attend a local church, you may sing hymns, you may listen to sermons, but as my good friend and one of the elders here at Grace Point, Dave Johnson, always points out, he says, just because you stand around in a garage does not make you an automobile, unquote. <laughs> Many Christians struggle with the concept of this whole idea of knowing the will of God for their lives. It's as if we approach it like some kind of a mystery that needs to be solved, but it always seems not to be solved. And if you are a believer who wants to know what you should want to know God's will for your life, I have some good news for you today. Good news for you today. Take your copy of scripture, turn to Colossians chapter 1, and uh, I will read you this prayer again, this great prayer of intercession, the Apostle Paul for the believers of the church at Colossae, and by extension to us here today. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 9. Let me read that for you. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that, verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Great prayer. You can pray that for yourself, for others, especially for your children, loved ones. And it's a great prayer, and it's in God's will that we pray that prayer. And so knowing God's will uh, is a compelling thing. If you are compelled by this prayer, good for you. You should be compelled by this prayer, compelled to want to know God's will, to live in God's will. And if you're not compelled by that prayer, if it doesn't touch you deep down in your soul, then I have to ask, why not? I have to question, do you really know Jesus as your personal Savior for everlasting life? So there's the idea of what compels you in all of life. As we return to the study of the book of Colossians, uh, it's interesting that that's the prayer that Paul prayed for them. He wants them to know God's will for their lives. And there's something peculiar about the motivation of early Christians when you read church history. Uh, especially like the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter as he was imprisoned in Rome. We have many passages of Scripture that explain his motivation. Perhaps 2 Corinthians 5.14 is the, the, the shortest, uh, wonderful statement he makes. He said, for the love of Christ compels me, or Christ's love compels me. His understanding of the love of Christ was a dramatic, powerful motivation in his life. Probably few of us will have his experiences or his gifts or his opportunities, but all of us have the same message that the Apostle Paul received and other early Christians about the powerful motivation of Jesus Christ. And so it'd be proper for each one of us as believers in Christ to say with all sincerity, for the love of Christ compels me. The word compel literally means to him in, to hold on both sides, to take away other options, to give no way out, 
to back into a corner. Are you compelled this morning? Backed into a corner for Jesus Christ. We are hemmed in by the love of Christ. Sometimes we think that the love of Christ leaves us uh, <clears throat> certain options. But the Apostle Paul doesn't have any of that. He doesn't say that in his letters. He said the love of Christ takes away our options, basically. Backs us into a corner, holds us firmly on all sides, gives us no way out. When we become motivated like that, we become a great power for God's glory and for the world's blessing, especially in this time of coronavirus. Take your copy of God's Word and page over to where we're at in our study through the book of Colossians. <clears throat> and we come to chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Let me pray. I'll read the passage, and then we'll start unpacking it. Heavenly Lord, Heavenly Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for this day of life. Thank you that even in the midst of a pandemic, pandemic and, and being apart from one another, that you unify us, you, through the power of your Spirit, you give us understanding and insight and comfort, and thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Thank you for your word today, for the book of Colossians, for the Apostle Paul, for Epaphras, for Timothy, and others uh, in the first century and for your sustaining hand that brought your word accurately, authoritatively, and trustworthily into our hands here today. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. By the way, uh, my sister asked me what version I preach from. I appreciate the question. I should have told you a long time ago, but I use the New American Standard Version. And so if uh, you use another version, and it's hard to follow me when I read a passage of Scripture. I would encourage you to get uh, the New American Standard Version of the Bible, and you can follow along, and perhaps uh, we can be clearer with one another. And so uh, the Apostle Paul, remember we have been studying in, in the uh, book of Colossians. Remember the two major chunks of Colossians, chapters 1 and 2, is what Christ has done. It's all about Jesus Christ. Of course, the whole book is about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And now in chapters 3 and 4, it's uh, what Christians should do or how then should we live or I'll give you a hint. I will uh, give you a real hint. It is God's will for your life, chapters 3 and 4. And so we are in the midst of uh, chapter 3 here. We began a couple of weeks ago, uh, but we've seen what Christ has done early in this book. And now how then should we live or because of what we've seen, what Christ has done, this should change our lives, should cause us to be compelled for him. We should let our position in Christ reflect our condition in life, how we live out each day. And uh, so let me read this passage of scripture, chapter three, beginning in verse 12. We've looked at uh, verses one through four and then five through 11, and we saw last in our last session in five through 11, the Apostle Paul is warning us. He's using this great metaphor of taking off old dirty clothes and putting on clean, beautiful clothes. That idea of this picture of putting off and putting on. And we'll see that here. And he, in the last session, we saw that he listed uh, technically two vice lists of five each that uh, we are to avoid. We are to take these things out of our lives. You know, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, do not lie to one another. Up above there, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And so those things should not mark the Christian. They should not be part of our lives. In verse 12, uh, he gives us the positive. He gives us the virtues that should mark a Christian's life. Look at verse 12, follow along as I read. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on 
a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We're going to see four motives here, four motives. And I know that personally and in all of our lives, our motives are a little bit slippery, aren't we? But God, through the Apostle Paul, defines for us the motives each believer should have. Each day we stand before a closet or a wardrobe and we decide what we're going to put on. We decide what clothes to wear. Now, some people are very organized and they decide well ahead of uh, things. I have, excuse me, I had a friend in the upper Midwest. He was a partner in a, a certified public accounting office and uh, in his closet, he had a suit for every day and it was already lined up. And as he went through the rotation, you know, he'd already chosen what he was going to wear each day at work. And he would go through his rotation. Well, he was very organized. Well, for the believer in Jesus Christ, we should think about what we are taking off and putting on. If you notice in verse 12, he said, put on this idea of clothing yourself with something positive. Up above in verse, <clears throat> excuse me, let's see, it's verse 8, 9, he said, lay aside the old self, lay aside the old self, because as we said last session, as believers in Christ, you are no longer who you used to be. So uh, we ask the question, what compels us? How do we live out our life? How do we put on these new qualities of life? Paul explained four motives for us. The first one is in verses 12 through 14. God's grace compels me. Look at verse 12 again, where he says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, believer in Christ, remember who you are. Remember who you are. First of all, God chose you. Romans 8.33, Titus 1.1. This is your identity. You are identified by your relationship through Jesus Christ with God the Father. Uh, all sorts of people will tell you who your identity is, who you are, and yet Christ is the one that counts. Romans 8.33, who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And he goes on beyond that. The second thing, God sets you apart. Holiness, and all of us, we don't feel holy. Maybe we don't act holy, but what that means, that's a misunderstanding of that word. It means separated under, unto God, Colossians 1.2 unto himself. So God chose you, God <clears throat> set you apart to himself, and God loves you. God loves you, Romans 5, 8, 1 John 4, 9 through 11 and 19. Uh, God is love. It, it's a characteristic of God that covers all of his attributes. And later on in the end of verse 13, it says, uh, God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. And so, believer, remember who you are. Remember your identity. And then he goes on in the second part of verse 12. Look at, your, look at your copy of God's Word. And he talks about our attitudes. We're to dress ourselves in the wardrobe of these attitudes. Look at verse 12b, where he says, put on. There's that verb. It's an imperative verb or a command, exhortation. 
He says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This heart of compassion, it literally means bowels of sympathy, bowels of sympathy. The ancients believed that, uh, you know, emotions originated from, from the bowels, if you will. And of course, we don't think about that often, but yet we do say, well, I've got a gut feeling or, uh, you know, we get a stomach ache because of uh, emotions. But compassion is what we would call a heart of pity. It's a sense of sympathy, empathy with others. The second uh, attitude is kindness. Kindness is an action that reveals our compassion and empathy. It, it arises from a sense of sympathy. It can take many different forms in our day-to-day -day life, especially now as we are physically separated from one another. The third motive, or the uh, third uh, attitude is humility. John Stott, uh, the great British theologian, rightly calls humility the rarest and fairest of all Christian virtues. Uh, the chief Christian virtue is humility because it is the exact opposite of the source of all sin, and that is pride. Uh, thus, we are to put on humility to think humbly of ourselves. The Apostle Paul puts it in another place. We are to regard others as better than ourselves. We are not, we are not to consider us, ourselves as superior to others. And man, in this day of uh, social unrest and, and rage, and all of us have opinions about that, but we need to be humble in our approach in life. And then the fourth attitude is quiet strength or gentleness. It's gentleness. A familiar word is often translated meekness. And oftentimes we think someone who's meek is weak. Well, Jesus was meek, but he certainly wasn't weak. I hear, <clears throat> I like the definition that meekness is strength under control. It's real strength. It's an excellent definition. Uh, another definition of meekness is, quote, a willingness to waive one's rights for a good cause. A willingness to waive one's rights for a good cause. Setting aside our own rights or what we perceive to be our rights for the good of others. Uh, we do not demand that we're satisfied, but for the sake of a good cause, to be willing to suffer loss. Meekness is the exact opposite of rudeness and abrasiveness. And believers, beloved ones, I see so much rudeness, rage, and unkindness and pride in many Christians around this nation today who are raging about stupid stuff like wearing a mask or about their rights, they do not understand what it means to be gentle. God's will is to have this attitude of gentleness. The fifth one is patience. The fifth quality is patience, literally long-suffering, enduring another's exasperating conduct without flying into a rage. This is a negative term. It's holding back. It's restraining yourself from becoming upset or speaking sharply or shrilly to somebody, uh, whether it's our, our spouse, our children, or those around us, uh, those who we may find difficult and exasperating. So we have those, those five attitudes there. And then there are actions in verse 13. Believer dress in the wardrobe of actions. Look at verse 13 again. Verse 13 says, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so should you. Believer dress in the wardrobe of actions, put on, bearing with one another. It's, uh, it's really linked with patience. Its quality is to bear with others. 
It's similar to long-suffering, but it's, uh, the positive side is to uphold and support someone, not to restrain yourself, but to support others and encourage them. It is a great quality of the Christian life, forgiving each other, just as the Lord Jesus forgave us. I think that if we understood the length and the amount of forgiveness that each one of us has received, we would look through different eyes at others who may offend us. This last quality, which I believe the apostle put uh, last, uh, specifically, deliberately, uh, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. You know, the Old Testament tells us that when we came to him, he casts our transgressions into the depths of the sea. Corey Tinboom used to say, uh, and then he puts up a sign, no fishing. Very quickly, it's helpful to remember that forgiveness uh, means three things, at least three things, probably many more. But first of all, forgiveness means that we're not going to bring this up again to the person that has offended us, that we have forgiven or we have said we've forgiven. Secondly, it means we do not tell anybody else about what has happened. The matter is forgiven. It is gone. And thirdly, forgiveness means that you do not remind yourself of what has been forgiven, that you don't constantly chew on it like a dog with a bone. And so we are called to be forgiven as Christ has forgiven us. Those are the actions. And verse 14, above all, the all-purpose garment that we put on is love. Look at verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The perfect bond of unity. Uh, we put on this love. When we love others, that means that we love them self-sacrificially. And that is the key to how a church functions. When there's church, when love leaves a church or any relationship in family members, uh, then the unity is destroyed. And love is the perfect bond of unity. So in these first few verses, not only does God's grace compel us, but secondly, in verse 15, the peace of Christ controls us. The peace of Christ controls us. Look again at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Uh, the rule, the, the idea is let the peace of Christ rule is an exhortation. It's, it's an imperative verb. And there's three marks of a life ruled by peace. When you look at your own life, you're not looking at other people's lives, but just concentrate on yourself. Three marks of a life ruled by, by peace is, first of all, there will be peace that acts as an umpire is basically what rule means. It's, uh, you know, baseball fans know that the man in the black suit behind home plate who stands behind the catcher, he makes the calls. He remains absolutely unruffled no matter what happens. Managers curse him, kick dirt on him. Fans throw stuff at him and yell at him, yet he remains unperturbed. That's the idea here is let the peace of Christ the calmness of Christ rule in your life. Consider Jesus in the Gospels. He moves into every situation with total poise and peacefulness. He's not upset by others, but remains calm and collected when people are panicking around him. He is in control. That's to characterize the believer in Jesus Christ in all of their functions in life. Secondly, we are called to unity. We are called in one body. The unity of the Holy Spirit unifies us, according to Ephesians chapter 4. We, are, we're not, we don't need to pray for unity. If the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, then we are already unified in Christ. But we have to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, thankfulness. 
And when the peace of Christ rules in my life, I will have an attitude of thankfulness. We find this exhortation everywhere in Scripture. We are to be characterized by an attitude of gratitude in all things. So not only does God's grace compel us, the peace of Christ can, uh, control, control us, but in verse 16, the word of Christ constrains us or constrains me. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness uh, in your hearts to God. This is how we serve God in this. This is God's will for us, a dependence upon the word of Christ. It says it's to dwell in us, let it dwell in us, and it's to inhabit in abundance. And I might remind you that uh, the word cannot get into you until you first get into the word. And uh, when it gets into you, it will control you. It will constrain you, the word of God, a new declaration of the word. Not only does uh, we have a dependence on the word, but a declaration of the word. We're told with all wisdom to admonish and teach. It means uh, to help others in their spiritual growth. And a result of the filling of the Holy Spirit will be psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, thankfulness in your heart. So it will be worship and gratitude. We see that in Ephesians also. And then thirdly, there's a new demonstration before the world. A heart of praise will fill the believer when Christ is in control of our lives. And so the word of Christ constrains me. So not only does God's grace compel us, the peace of Christ can uh, control us, uh, the word of Christ uh, constrain us. But in verse 17, and this is the final verse, the name of Christ centers us. It centers us. Uh, look at verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So this is the bottom line teaching of this paragraph today, or actually of, from beginning of chapter 3. This is the bottom line. Whatever you do, our words, our ways, our witness. Notice in verse 17, he talks about our lips, whatever you do in word. And he also talks about our ways or our life or deed and uh, our witness. Do all, do all to the glory of Christ. And so the, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we live out our life, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Again, that attitude of thankfulness the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about identification. We belong to Jesus Christ. As we go through the first two chapters, he reinforces again and again, for those who believe in Jesus for everlasting life, you belong to him. You are no longer who you used to be. As Christians, we bear the name of Christ. Interestingly, the name Christian is only found three times in the entire New Testament. Acts 11, 26, 26, 28, 1 Peter 4, 16. The name was originally given as a, a, a term of contempt in the early days of the church, but gradually it became a name of honor, and we should take it as a name of honor and not be embarrassed by it. But his name also not only is identifying us, but it also, his name means authority. Uh, God's name always means authority and power. You know, there are people whose name, your name signed on a check, authorizes somebody to draw, withdraw money from your account. The president's name signed on a bill makes it a law. In the same way, the name of Jesus Christ has us, gives us the authority to pray in his name, 
That's why we say, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, because Jesus Christ is God. He has died for us. We have the authority in his name. Ruth uh, Graham uh, had for many years a sign over her kitchen sink that said, divine services held here three times a day. Washing the dishes can be an act of worship if you do it in the name of the Lord as unto him. Do all things, as he said here, whatever you do, word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, knowing God's will is actually paying attention to his word. And uh, you should know that this is God's will for your life. In light of chapters 1 and 2, he's starting in 3 and 4. This is God's will for your life. It's not a mystery. It's in black and white. It's very clear, and we can learn it. So actually, knowing God's will is paying attention to God's word. As we review the four spiritual motivations of godly living, it should impress you that the centrality of Jesus Christ again in this letter. We forgive because Christ forgave us. The peace of Christ should rule in our hearts. The word of Christ should dwell in us richly. The name of Christ should be our identification and our authority. Christ is all and in all. Now you are on the road for knowing God's will for your life. Can we desire any higher motivation? Is there any more compelling figure in all of history and all of time than Jesus Christ himself? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Praise you for your goodness. Praise you that you are the supreme one, that your supremacy over your church and that we are part of your church. And we thank you for it. Pray for any today who are struggling and who are wrestling with our current situation or many other things that come into our lives. And I pray that for them that they would know that the peace of Christ can rule in their lives. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen.